Hi, everybody. Welcome to the PR Masters podcast series. I'm Art Stevens, your host. We invite you to sit back, relax, and join yet another legend in the public relations and communications industry. Our guest today is somebody that I've known for many years. He's Doug Simon, and Doug is a pioneer and leader in broadcast and Internet media. Doug Simon is the CEO of award-winning firm D.S. Simon Media. His firm advises and executes broadcast and social media video communications campaigns for leading brands and nonprofits. As media preferences have changed, this increasingly includes featuring CEOs and other executives in satellite media tours, in the travel, consumer, technology, healthcare, and financial services spaces. Doug began his career at NBC Sports. He served as talent assistant to the great Bob Costas. Doug's hobbies include performing stand-up comedy at New York's top clubs and rooting for terrible sports teams, including the Jets and Knicks, while remaining optimistic. Well, I share your hobbies also, but I don't do stand-up comedy, Doug. Anyway, Doug Simon, how are you today? Welcome. I'm, I'm doing great, and I should probably update that because the Knicks actually had a pretty decent season last year on that. But thanks so much for having me on the show. It's great to be talking with you as someone who's accomplished so much in the industry. Uh, thank you very much. Well, yes, the Knicks did have a good year. I've been a Knicks fan myself for many, many years, and at, at least they made it to the playoffs this year, and they were more exciting yep. than usual. So we have great cause to be optimistic going forward. So, but we're not here to talk about the Knicks, are we, Doug? We're here to talk about you and some of the pioneering things you've done. And let me just, for a moment, let me just list some of the things that you have done in your 35-year career with your own firm. My God, 35 years. It sounds like the firm was started by your grandfather, then handed over to your father and then to you. But alas, as fate would have it, no, it was just you for 35 years. We'll get into that in a moment. But first of all, some of the things that that you have done. You've won more than 100 awards, for example. You're among the earliest developers of satellite and co-op satellite media tours. You produced the first live Super Bowl commercial and then the first live Super Bowl HD spot. And you were invited to provide expert testimony at U.S. Senate hearings on government use of video news releases. Got to hear about that, too. In addition, Doug, you were the first in the industry to start a video blog which became a platform to develop new digital services. You were the first to develop Internet media tours. You're the creators of the Spokies, the first awards program to honor PR spokespeople. And you're, you're, you've been members of the Forbes Agency Council. Gosh, Doug, you have done a great deal in your career, and I'm so glad that you're with us today. Which leads to my very, very first question. Uh, well, first of all, let me ask you, how are you today? How are things going? But things are going really great. You know, fortunately, business is good. You know, what we do has become increasingly important to clients, so you're very fortunate when you're in a space that's in increasing demand. Well, you know, Doug, I've known you forever. I knew you when I had my public relations firm, Lopes & Stevens in New York City, and I'm sure you remember it well, and made, use of, made great use of your services periodically. So I'm going to start with an overall question on your background. How did you get into this business in the first place? 
Sure. Well, it was somewhat accidental, but, you know, the path in college, I was a political science major, and then I decided I didn't want to go to law school and started taking communications and wanted to be in TV production. And I was with one company, and then I had an opportunity at Michael Klepper Associates, a public relations firm, and I did traditional PR account work for what was then known as Boys Clubs of America, what's now Boys and Girls Clubs of America, and Data General, and that firm was actually a pioneer in broadcast public relations. Michael Klepper had started the broadcast group within Burson Marsteller back in back in the day, which is now obviously you know Cone, Burson Marsteller, um, and they, I had an opportunity there to become the executive producer in their department, which was doing what were video news releases, which were basically video press kits designed as if it was a local news story, so that was the thought process, provided stations free of charge, and they could choose to air it or not air it as they saw fit, and we were able to track it and report it to the client. So I got the run there. Um, Two years after I took over that role, my boss thought I wasn't good at new business development and let me go and hired a replacement. And I figured, you know, why not work for someone I have to look at in the mirror every morning and decided to start my own shop. I was 27 at the time. And they did offer me my job back at about three months later when the other person didn't make it. By, by then, I decided to start my own business. Wow, wow. So you've, you've, you've probably had your business longer than most public relations firms have been in existence. Um, how, how does it feel after 35 years? You've gone through a lot of technology changes, a lot of changes in basic communications. You've gone through the growth of public relations as a profession, as an industry. Um, I mean, you, you've been in a time machine. How would you describe that feeling? You know, it actually feels really good. And I'd say, you know, one of my favorite things throughout my career has been helping sort of smart young people who have a good work ethic achieve their full potential and grow with with them and them with us. Obviously, it stems from the fact that I started a company when I was 27, so I'm not making judgments about people's lack of potential because of age, young or old, and that's always been part of it. So that's the really great thing, and I like to sort of joke, but it's not really a joke. It's true. After about eight years, I realized if I just hire really good people, the problems seem to take care of themselves, and that's worked out really well. Of course, there have been you know, massive changes in communications, in technology, and what the government has said, and most importantly, how people consume content. And the pendulum swings back, forth, and sideways in terms of what's the in thing. But what's key and what continues is brands need to be able, and nonprofits, I should say, which are also brands in their own right, need to be able to tell their stories in a way that's authentic and that resonates with key public and can reach the higher standard of actually getting the okay from decision makers in media that they want to share this content with their audiences. So that's a differentiation from just creating an ad, not to belittle it, and we're going to buy it and put it everywhere, versus we're going to create content that people are going to choose to watch, that producers are going to choose to put on their show. It's a very interesting sort of package to do it that way, and I've got a skilled group that's helped me accomplish it. And those awards you alluded to earlier, you know, I had roles in some of them, but a lot of that was due to our team. Overwhelming majority was due to the team that we've built. 
Doug, you know, you've seen many ups and downs in, in what mm-hmm. regulatory bodies in Washington, D.C., uh, what they've laid down in terms of rules about what's allowed on national and local TV. Um, I remember the issues regarding video news releases, because I think I was still in the PR agency business at the time. Yeah. Uh, basis for the, uh, the uh, uh, overview of video news releases, what took place, and how they affected your business. Sure. Um, at the time in 2005, when this sort of hit the fan, um, video news releases were a larger percentage of our business than were satellite media tours, which had only been introduced about you know five to seven years earlier. I may be off on those exact dates. And there was a group, it was somewhat ironic, as there was a group that was sort of a lip, considered itself a liberal group based in Wisconsin that thought that the reason America had problems and the George W. Bush administration did the things that they considered unpopular was because TV stations would run video news releases. But at the basis of what they said was a legitimate point, that people watching at home, and I agreed with this, did have a right to know if something was produced by the station itself or if something was provided to the station by an outside source with an interest of seeing it on the news. Now, that could be extended to if someone makes a PR pitch and someone then does a story, do they need to say the story is as a result of the PR pitch or not? That could be debated endlessly. But when there is video content being received, as was the case with a video news release without a producer reporter at the station engaged in creating that content, should that be labeled? That was the big issue. Because of that, there was a major outcry. Station lawyers decided not to use that kind of material anymore. It had a significant impact on our industry. I mean, I'd say over a two-year period of what had been our VNR business lost about 75-plus percent of value and volume of what we were doing before that. So we did have to change because satellite media tours involved a reporter engaging with your spokesperson, it was not controlled content. So that same argument couldn't make. And ironically, pushing back against video news releases, making them of less value except for the most compelling type of story, helped satellite media tours become a dominant way to get a business organization or nonprofit group spokesperson interviewed on TV because of its efficiency and value. Have video news releases ever ever come back in any form, or they are, they're, they're totally uh, out of the services provided by your firm and others like yours? No, they, they've definitely made a comeback. It's much more selective in terms of what makes sense. Basically, the story needs to be bigger and harder for the media you know, to gain access to. For years, we've worked with Macy's doing behind-the-scenes shooting of how they're preparing for, say, the Thanksgiving parade or the Fourth of July fireworks. That's footage that's of great interest that stations couldn't get themselves, so they will use it. It's frequently packaged as B-roll footage that the stations edit themselves. Also, there's some areas within healthcare for, you know, medical organizations issuing reports in their journals where those stories will be provided to medical reporters for free as part of a video news release there. While there is also B-roll footage, which includes video and then sound bites of participants, 
We also do cut it into an editorial package just to help make sure that the producers on the other end understand the story. They can use it in its entirety. That used to be way more common before 2005 than it is now. So the change is video news release B-roll as a tool is more for larger stories that it's difficult for people to access, reporters to access otherwise. Doug, what, what, what's the breakdown, you know, of the uh, uh, of, of your client base in terms of the categories? Uh, uh, by that I mean, you know, agencies, corporations, sure. nonprofits, government. You know, what what's the largest part and what's the what's the least? Well, it's a pretty close split between agency business and working directly with the client. And of course, you know, those never overlap. If you work with the agency, you always work through the agency with the client. Interestingly, a few years back, there started to be a trend where some agencies were saying, we know you've worked with us on this, but we'd rather you work directly with the end client on this and just keep us Hmm. in the loop. So that was a trend that started to happen. I would surmise, but Art, with your expertise running agencies, you know, agencies were being put in a position, for example, let's say you have a half a million dollar contract, do you want to charge extra for the four extra hours supporting a satellite media tour when the client might be like, hey, what's that bill, versus letting the billing just happen directly and not come off your bottom line? That's speculation, but that that's a trend. So it's usually a 50-50 split for us, you know, a lot of consumer work, Nonprofit makes up like 10 to 15 percent of our total business. Oftentimes, it's organizations who may be partnering with a nonprofit. But I think the biggest transition, and this is one that I've been on a soapbox for for quite a while, is the increased use, especially by brands, of their own internal spokesperson. And this has been accelerated by the COVID pandemic as well. Previously, years ago, Um, it was thought better to have a third-party, unaffiliated person speak on behalf of your brand. One of the changes that came out of the VNR controversy in 2005 was a requirement by the FTC, by the FCC, excuse me, on this one, that if you were an independent spokesperson hired by a brand and the wordage they use is you receive something of value and you go on TV for an interview, you need to disclose that you're working with that brand. So there was no sort of hidden someone's doing an interview and just randomly mentions a company without identifying that they're working with and receiving something of value. That's one piece to it. But I've always felt it's far more authentic for an organization to actually have someone within that organization telling the story. It it provides much greater value. Well, that leads me to my my next question. Interesting. Do you uh, work for government at all, or federal, or local? You know, like regulatory bodies, uh, et cetera. Um, not too many regulatory bodies. We have done some government-related work during our time during the company history. Not a huge part of our business. A lot of work we've we've done is sort of in the public affairs space. Ah, yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, It it would have been ironic, you know, had one of your clients been the uh, FCC itself, (laughs) when on the one hand, you know, they're issuing decrees about, you know, the the 
the more limited use of uh, you know of video news releases and uh, company spokespersons, et cetera. And on the other hand, you're actually doing you know some you know some uh, uh, satellite media tours you know for the FCC. Yeah, that so that, that would have been an policy. interesting account. And you know, I understood it was difficult for government to understand the nuance that they were asking for more transparency was actually a good thing. There was resistance from others in our industry who saw it more as a threat rather than a good thing and, you know, didn't want to comply with that. Mm. So, you know, that was a problem. That's why it ended up being so damaging for that specific service, and some of those companies are no longer around in their current form. That is true. That is true, yeah. So, Doug, what role has technology played? You've been in business for so many years now. What 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 role has tech, technology played in how you provide your firm services, at least at the present time? Sure. I mean, technology is huge, and having people who understand it and can use it. And I think, you know, the best case of this was at the onset of the COVID pandemic, you know, which affected so many. And there were so many businesses that were wondering, <clears throat> excuse me, were they going to be able to survive? For instance, we have our own broadcast center and control room in New York. It's all set up via satellite. And the reality was that in early March of 2020, people weren't going to be coming into our studio to do projects anymore. It just wasn't going to happen. So I sort of view this start date, if we go back to sort of the sports piece to this, of when the pandemic really was an awakening for people was when the NBA shut down its season. That was sort of the warning shot. That was, I believe, Wednesday or Thursday. The next Monday, we had uh, engineers and our team in our control room retrofitting it to be able to do all production with the spokesperson in a remote location wherever they were. And so, you know, technology was vital to keeping our industry alive. And even our data from TV stations, we frequently survey them to see where they're at, take their temperature. This approach to producing interviews at TV stations is going to continue. Our survey found 85% of TV producers plan to continue to use these Zoom-style interviews even after the pandemic ends. You know, as you said yourself a moment ago that, you know, many of your competitors over the years have come and gone. Some could not adjust to the new realities, uh, you know, taking shape. So what did you do to enable you to not only survive but to, to prosper? Well, you know, it wasn't just a me thing. It was a team thing. And I mentioned in year eight, I learned that if I hire really good people, we f would figure things out and be able to navigate all of these changes and meet the needs of the clients and express them. You know, some of it can be luck. Some of it is skill of the team. You know, I think a big part of it is, you know, how transparent I was within my organization about how our business is doing. So people know when things are good. They know when things are not that good. And specifically at the start of COVID, you know, I was the first one to say, I'm not going to be taking any salary. And that started in March 15th. And there was a brief period where, you know, a number of members of the team had small cuts, which I hope to make up, just to ensure we could survive if business went away. I had told them right up front that my number one priority was to try and keep the team together. You know, I didn't make a guarantee because 
who knows with events that were changing so fast, but that was my number one priority. You know, the team was tremendously focused, and myself with a couple of other members of the team, Lauren Campbell, my general manager, deserves a shout-out, but we worked 24-7 to make sure we could get PPP money to keep our team intact regardless of the hit that happened. And it actually, we got the notification within two weeks of that first payroll that we had received the money, and I was able to make sure everyone not only got their full paychecks, but got any money back that had been deducted from the first paycheck when there had been cuts. And I think being transparent and communicating effectively internally, building that trust, builds a tremendous sense of loyalty among the team. So I wasn't going to be the one to figure out how to re-engineer our control room. I knew we had to figure it out, but I had a team that was committed to making that work and getting the right people together and making it happen, committed to continuous improvement. You know, I also would say, and if I look at myself, some businesses are great at, okay, here's our four-year plan, here's our six-year plan. I've always been more of a in the moment, okay, what's the best thing to do from where we are right now, which I think has done two things. I sort of joke that one, maybe it's why I'm not a $100 million company, because that's my approach. But on the other hand, maybe that's why I'm still in business and have a really good company and we're a multi-million dollar company. So I think, you know, the key part was, you know, having your team aware of what the needs are and, you know, what's needed to be successful be open to their suggestions and ideas. Make sure you've got people who are smarter than you in a bunch of different areas. You know, maybe not all of them. I'm saying that with a wink, but you know, at least some. So you've got a tremendous level of talent and commitment. And if you have that, you can survive change. I think a couple of other things that are key is we've really made it our job. One of the first things we did it when COVID hit, as an example, in addition to making sure we could handle the technological aspect of all the projects we needed to do was reach out to the media. And I told our media booking team, we didn't necessarily have projects to pitch, but instead let's reach out to the TV producers, reporters we work with, find out what their needs are. So we started a series on that, which was a media guide for PR pros. We're, you know, a couple times a month, we were getting information out about what the media was looking for, how they were looking to cover what types of stories, which kept us top of mind. That really led to the development of our PR's Top Pros Talk series, which has been phenomenally successful, both in imparting important information to communicators about how to do their job better and insights and how some of the best thinkers in our industry, yourself included, you know, how they think how they suggest you go about doing better with ideas that people can learn, they can put these tips into practice right away. You know, that's been something that's helped keep us top of mind as well. And even if we go back to when there was a controversy around video news releases, we were not close to being the largest company. We were probably 120th the size of the big ones. But the big ones were naturally drawn into the discussion they couldn't avoid it and then we were there at the table with them and as you know i mentioned some of them you know no longer exist on that so i think that's been a key piece as well so those essentially essentially what your services uh provide is really getting your your clients on local and national television 
and I guess you're hired, you know, to use the different techniques, satellite media tours and what have you, uh, you know, to do that. So your 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 clients obviously count on results. Uh, of course. Obviously, you've been able to achieve magnificent results. And I just wonder what it is you you, you partly answer my question about how you just described your, your you know your polling of the media and what they need and so on when you sometimes didn't actually have something to send them. Uh, but in in addition to that, uh, what do you attribute your success to? I know you have a great team. Uh, and I met some of them, and I certainly uh, agree with you on that. Uh, but how do, how do you make sure that you get the appropriate results so that your firm is hired over and over again, you know, by satisfied clients? Sure. Well, I think the key is, you know, the story development. If you give a PR person, <clears throat> excuse me, if you give a PR person a lousy pitch, no matter how hard they work, they're not going to be successful. So the key is really finding that alignment between what is considered newsworthy, what has value to a local media market, what is local relevance, with can you fit a brand or a nonprofit's message into that same storyline and have it fit. So a typical type of format might be something like problem-solution as a way to deal with it. Or here's a scenario that people are struggling with, here are options to do that. And the idea is it would be a good story even if the client wasn't involved in it. It just so happens the client's the one that has the solution or sharing its findings and information. So I think that's really a good way to start that, to find that balance. Also, when it comes to satellite media tours, reminding them that you're having a conversation typically three minutes, three-plus minutes in place. So it's not just trying to deliver one idea. Hey, we've got this great new product. You have a chance to develop a story. Is this a scenario that people are dealing with? How are they going about? Is it something that's affecting people more in specific regions? Is there local data? An upcoming campaign we're going to be doing is about the safety and health of school buildings, which obviously now takes on added importance in COVID. But Part of that story is going to be what are inexpensive things that people in the districts can do to help make their schools healthier and safer. So the key is building a narrative that would be effective, that works for this three-minute discussion, and can also include video. A high percentage of stations prefer now that the interviews happen either on location, at a person's home, or at their office, compared to having them in a studio or, you know, coming down to the station, which actually finishes third. That's the least of interest. I believe it was 83% prefer the on-location office or at home, only 9% prefer from a studio, and 8% prefer at a station for interviews they conduct. As you as you are well aware, you know, uh, my present work after I sold my public relations agency uh, is doing mergers and acquisitions as as part of the uh, Stevens Group. So I work with a lot of uh, public relations uh, agencies out there, and the discussion very often comes up between you know what what their clients uh, view as you know the current value uh, between what what you know what we have always called earned media uh, and 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 currently social media digital interactive. Right. Uh, and it's been my experience in, in working with agency CEOs that earned media 
uh, is still very, very important to their clients. You know, they they want to have their clients on uh, on television. They want to see their clients in in print. You know, in the New York Times and what have you. Uh, of and of course, what you do is in the Earn Media camp. I have to assume that your contributions to a client success uh, is is very, very important because you are in the earned media camp and you provide, you know, the uh, the, the, the capability that uh, supplements and reinforces what agency account executives also do. So, uh, how do, how do you how do you view that as part of, let's say, your marketing uh, and uh, and trying to get the concept of the importance of earned media across? It is interesting that you say that because for many years we've been described as paid media because the client or an agency has to pay us to get the story out there. So is there, there is that split. You know, I think it's also important to add for realistic context, a number of years ago TV stations said, why should we let smart PR people get all the money for bringing us these great stories? So a number of stations have established their own shows, not through their news department, where brands can do brand integration as part of the distribution. And that has become a portion of the work we do to help guarantee, for instance, that a company can get on in a crucial market. So whether you want to call what we do being paid, since we're being paid, paid or earned, it's typically a portion of it is earned from our perspective. Some of it, for instance, we do brand integration with some syndicated shows as part of our package so we can give clients guarantees of reach for their campaign, which they appreciate. No one wants to spend money and be like, "Uh uh-oh, we didn't get anything. That's another reason there's been a shift from the video news release as a tool to a satellite media tour. When a video news release goes out and an announcement is made, you don't necessarily know if anyone's going to pick it up, and that can be buffeted by the news events of the day. We had a campaign we did in that forum, and it was the day um, after Brexit passed on that, which no one expected. It was a business story. The client had actually an interesting business story, but all the business reporters were covering Brexit, so no one went to a press conference about that because there was a much bigger story. Satellite Media Tour gives you much more control over the news cycle because it tends to play in a, in a spot that's less hard news. Uh, Doug, how do you, do you use the Internet and digital services for your clients uh, in any way? Um, we do in some cases, and the biggest parts of it, one is in production, how we actually get the content to stations, because frequently stations will want it through a proprietary feed or through Zoom. We actually now use the Internet to do satellite transmission. We can transmit from our second control center in our office to a satellite uplink in full HD broadcast quality with only a quarter of a second delay using the Internet. That's how equipment has changed you know, what we do so much. Um, what we found as we were looking to make the push into sort of Internet and digital services is while clients might need a boost for a campaign for their TV and radio and earned media, Typically, their social media would already be assigned to someone either internally, externally, or in combination who sort of handles their entire social media. It's not organized by a specific campaign or initiative. So that tends to become the priority and 
purview of the agencies they work with on the digital side. So a part of what we do is to provide video content that clients can use within their own and other social media channels. That's, you know, that's a key part. The other part that uses the Internet, especially within COVID, is virtual and now what will become hybrid events. Um, we've done fundraisers, and this is an area where overwhelmingly the work is for nonprofits. Right now you're not going to get people to travel to speak on, at an event. You're not necessarily going to get hundreds of people to come out in person, though that can fluctuate by the week, it seems, or the month, depending on what's happening with the pandemic. But there's still great interest. So now there are ways to produce events with multiple appearances, multiple sessions in high quality that can combine pre-produced and live material and interaction through the internet. When we built the second broadcast control center, a key part of that was using equipment that was specifically designed to do panel discussions and be able to then distribute that to people either through social media channels. Some we do literally is on the client's Facebook page, and that's how people watch it. Others can be done behind a paywall or behind a wall where people have to sign in, get approved, give their email, allow themselves to be contacted to create business opportunities. So there's you know, definitely lots of ways Internet has happened. And you know, 100% Internet is used to connect remote located spokespeople to our control room for any satellite media tour we're doing. Uh, what's your perspective on where the public relations industry as a whole, whether it's whether it's uh, the corporate sector or, or agency or uh, nonprofit, et cetera, uh, where do you think the industry is right now, and where do you think it's headed? Well, you know, I can give my uh, two cent opinion, and that and a transit card will get me on the New York subway for this one. But some of the trends that I see, number one is there's been an increased realization because of the pandemic that good public relations is more important than it's ever been. There's also been an increased realization that leaders at companies have a greater responsibility to get out there and communicate their messages. Third, I think there's also a realization that the silos have somewhat broken down. You can't segment internal communication from external. And one of the best ways to communicate with your internal team is actually by getting on local TV news in those markets. There's a greater credibility to something where your CEO goes out on TV and says the company is doing it than if it was just said at an internal meeting. So I think you're seeing growth of importance in communicating as a trend, growth in awareness of the value of PR. And I think a big piece that we haven't discussed yet, which is very important, is the increased awareness of the social injustices that have been going on and trying to turn those around. These days, it's much harder for companies to avoid being part of those discussions and taking action. And Despite there being huge political differences around the country, in terms of your employee base and your future employees, as you want to be pulling from a pool that's more diverse, that's become more important than ever 
to have acknowledgement of those issues. One of the big ones that I see coming up, which will be interesting, is sort of the upcoming debate of do people need to go physically back to work in their office or can they work remotely? Um, what I, where I stand, and this is something that I think is appreciated by my employees, I told them I'm never going to make anyone come to the office unless it's material to their job. If you are the technical director of a live broadcast and you need to be at the equipment to do the job, you have to be willing to go into the office to do that function. But if it's not needed, you don't. I think you know one of the next interesting areas in PR is we're going to see changes. The Wall Street Journal covered it. You know, Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan are requiring employees to be back, and a lot of people don't like that, especially younger people. And you know, despite my years of experience, I guess I can factor in as a younger person because I align with them. With like, why have to go back to the office if it doesn't have value? What more do people need to do than what they've done these last? 17 months to prove that they can work effectively remotely. I don't know what more you would have to prove. I have to kind of, I have to say I agree with you. <laughs> uh, Doug, I have a couple of uh, final questions for you, but these sure. are about you personally. Uh, okay, you've been sure. very gracious with your time in giving us, you know, some insights and input as to, uh, you know, the uh, – the, uh, kind of service you provide to the PR industry and, and uh, kind of where it is at the moment. But I want to ask you a couple of questions about yourself. What does Doug sure. Simon do when he's not working? You know, what, what hobbies do you have? What, uh, what do you do when, when uh, you've got time on your hands, which I'm sure is not very often? <laughs> sure. Um, lots of things. Definitely, you know, in normal times, enjoy theater, enjoy music, enjoy concerts, enjoy sports events. I've been a season ticket holder to the Jets. My family has been since 1965 on that, and I've had Knicks season tickets since the late 80s on that. You know, playing sports as it's allowed. I had uh, some neck surgery earlier this year, so hopefully I can get back out on the basketball court and all those types of things. Um, My wife and I this year did make a decision to purchase a home outside of New York City in addition to the apartment we live in, so making that the way we want it as a place for our family and for generations to come, that's been something I've been spending a significant amount of time on and I'm very excited about. And, you know, then there's work, family life, you know, trying to make things better in my circle. And one final question, Doug. What will Doug Simon be doing in the years ahead? You know, it's interesting because I'm, I'm only 62, which is pretty young. And a while back, I thought I might retire at 70, though now I'm sort of adding a couple of COVID years to that because I want to make sure that I, you know, remain active. However, I also want to give opportunities for growth to the people at my team. You know, for the foreseeable future, I see myself continuing to work. Ideally, I'd like to be more involved, and this would be more in a volunteer role in, you know, political strategy and supporting the type of change that I'd like to see for the country and many other people like to see. I've been fairly active in that both through my work and as a hobby on the private side. You know, hopefully my kids are in their 20s now. At some point I'll get to be a grandparent and enjoy that. 
And I, sh- I should also add that I spend a lot of time involved with art, as my w- wife is a museum guide at the Met and a docent at the Whitney. So I liked it as well, and because she's done that, I've gotten the opportunity to learn so much, and it's so important you know, that all types of art be brought to so many more people. Well, Doug Simon, you, you certainly live a well-rounded life. And uh, uh, first off, I want to thank you, Doug, really so much for joining us today and, and to share your knowledge and your insights into the world of broadcast television and uh, the services that you provide and have for many years uh, on a high-quality basis. And it's been really fascinating listening to your journey and your really trailblazing services to the industry. Uh, you are indeed a PR master, and I thank you for joining us on PR Masters Podcast today. Great. Well, Art, it's an honor to be with you, and I really hope that at least there's a nugget or two that people listening can take, and maybe it will inspire them a little bit to be better. I think one important piece that I tell my employees, and I think is really great advice for people out there that's important to share, is sometimes when people start, they're nervous to share what they're thinking. And I tell people that if they're thinking something that could make us better and they're not saying it, they're cheating us as a company and cheating themselves. So if I can encourage people, doesn't matter what your age is, but to share what you're thinking if your focus is how do we make things better, how do we do a better job, how do I create better opportunity for myself and for others, share what's on your mind and your thinking and be ready to back it up. And that's going to really help propel you forward. And you might end up speaking to Art Stevens on the PR Masters program someday (laughs) if you do that. Good advice, Doug, really. Well said, well said. And again, thank you so much, and I wish you continued success in all you do. And thank you all for joining us in the 52nd edition of PR Masters. Please be on the alert for our next PR Masters podcast. And as usual, we promise you that a legend in our industry will will share his or her wisdom with you all. Until then, this is Art Stevens signing off and wishing you all the very best.